these are all kind of inflection points in your life. Can you look back those seven years and, and figure out how you thought, what you, how you were that at that time and how you are now? Mm-hmm. And at the time then, I was lost a bit spiritually, you know, um, I felt disconnected. I felt alone, you know, in a sense, and I felt lost, you know, even though I was successful and I had friends and I had loved ones and family, I felt that something was on the horizon, some kind of doom. And it did happen to me mm-hmm. through a divorce, you know, having a nervous breakdown. Um, but I also recovered and, you know, that was the the best part of it. Like I, I did fall down, but I got back up. Mm-hmm. And when I got back up, I was more independent than I was previously. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever their curiosity takes you. In today's episode, we are joined by returning guest, Todd Myrick. In today's episode, we do a deep dive into the film Fight Club. Fight Club is a cult classic film, and if you haven't watched it, we get pretty spoilery here. We don't go too detail into the story specifically, but we do cover most of the major plot points. What is really important about this episode, though, is it, this movie for Todd is an exploration of his own journey over the last 20 years, because we are coming up on the 20-year anniversary, which I believe has just passed, of the film releasing. And a lot of what we're looking at here is, and that's why the title of this episode is What I Learned from Fight Club 20 Years Later. And it's just an awesome conversation to have with someone like Todd and to make this lasting friendship and relationship. Um, Todd and myself are separated by almost the same amount of time as the movie and age-wise as the movie is itself. We have about 20 years of age difference, but we can have these conversations like this podcast where we talk for an hour and a half and then we could have kept going for another hour and a half or much longer than that. And, you know, we talk about a lot of really important things about mindfulness and how like society's role plays in affecting ourselves and others and how we can change our own mindset to affect those around us. And it's just awesome to have this kind of outlet and it's not even to say that it's part of the recording. It's part of the just being able to be authentic with another person and go deep and talk about, hey, these are the things that I've dealt with. And hey, this is how I'm working through it. It's not a work in pro- it's, it's not that I've got it all figured out, but hey, I'm on the path of trying to figure it out for myself. And at one point in this episode, I do kind of stop and tell Todd that he has done the work here. Like he's really spent a lot of time to better himself and it it shows it really does show and i and i can't be more humbled by having someone like this and as many of the people that come on the show to be anchors for me and being able to bounce off ideas and just work through all of this stuff you know figuring our own shit out for lack of a better way of phrasing it and with that everyone please enjoy my conversation with todd myrick and fight club Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And today, we're actually joined by a returning guest, Todd Myrick. 
Um, and we're going to be talking about a favorite film of his, Fight Club. And I'll let him take it away from there while we're actually discussing this. Hmm. Well, thanks, Eric. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's coming up on the 20th anniversary of the movie Fight Club. And I guess it's considered a cult classic because when it was released back in 1999, around in October of 1999, it didn't, you know, uh, you know, generate a huge amount of uh, revenue, but it became rather popular uh, being rewatched and as, you know, as video went to video and people started watching it more. And I think, you know, the popularity of the movie was probably due to the, um, the writing, the quotes, the quotable mm-hmm. quotes. And, you know, uh, th- there's a plot twist at the end. We can talk about that when we get towards it. But, yeah. uh, you know, the movie itself, you know, for me, I just was turning 30 at that time. And, you know, uh, for me, it was like, uh, it was a transition period in my life where, you know, the first 30, 29 years, 30 years, I worked really hard, you know, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was affected by a number (laughs) of things like, you know, being born and, you know, going to school, but I struggled, you know, I worried, you know, about would I, would I be successful, Mm -hmm. you know, what it would look like. And I, you know, I've had a number of relationships at the time, you know, probably two significant, maybe three significant relationships. And I finally just met uh, my first wife, you know, and so we were, you know, in love, we were planning to get married. And, you know, um, so this movie comes like around that time. Now, I don't think I watched it when it first came out. I think I watched it around 2001, 2000, 2001. So that was like a couple years after its actual initial release. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw it in the movie theaters advertisements. You know, the the, the it looked kind of neat, but I was like, eh, you know, I'm not going to go see that. <laughs> I was waiting for a video or something like that. And then when it did come out on video, I remember like I think like what happened was my friend purchased it on the DVD, and it came in that that you know at the time they were marketing DVDs, mm-hmm. and it came like in this brown bag kind of DVD. It was a it was like a two set DVD with the, <laughs> like the commentary and stuff. Yeah. So when we watched it, you know. The first thing I think, the, the first quote that kind of grabbed my attention was, this is your life in attending one minute at a time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think when you hear that for the first time, you're, it's like, it's a truism, right? You're like, oh yeah, this is my life and it does end one minute at a time, you know? Coupled to that, there's the other quote that says, on a long enough timeline, everyone's survival rate reaches zero. Right, so these is two <laughs> times. You know, I don't mean you know. to laugh, but it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean these truisms, like you know, they kind of hit you between the head, right? Yeah. Between the eyes, like yeah, okay, he's that, that's true, you know. So we're dying, you know, we're all, you know we're in a state of entropy, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, I'm in my thirties. I'm not. I'm not thinking about death or dying. I'm worrying. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm worrying about not having a lot of money or not being successful or you know, you know, uh, or you know. Uh, having, you know, I had to buy, I bought my first house. I had my, you know, I had a car, um, but you know, I was getting married, Mm -hmm. actual married, you know, not just like, you know, talking to my, you know, to a girl and and talking about marriage, you know, we were actually planning to get married. Yeah. So it was becoming, I was growing up, you know? So, and the, the, the first, um, dialogue in the movie begins with, with the gun, pressed between your teeth, you only speak in vowels, right? So this, this is the actual first, line of the movie and um it kind of sets the tone of these truisms that are gonna that are gonna come out in the book he says everyone smiles with the invisible gun to their head you know mm. but it, you know 
that's that, where they took from it. That adjusted writing is it really hits a lot more home when you <laughs> when you talk about you only speaking vowels. Yeah, and so with that it begins at the end, right? And then it flash forwards, uh, you know, to the narrator's uh, kind of struggles, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the mundane life, <laughs> the mundane of, life, like for lack of a better description. You know, right. when you, you when you're describing it, it really it makes a lot of sense of why it would resonate at the age that it did for you because it it almost strikes home to that that you know endless middle management type position that a lot of us get stuck in, right? Where we're mm-hmm. we go through school and we we know we're promised all of these great things. You know, you get the commencement speeches and all that stuff, and says you're going to go do great things in the world, and then all of a sudden you know, flash forward the next six years of your life and you get stuck in a position that you really don't like anymore. And it's maybe not as fulfilling as you thought it was going to be. And you're just sending emails or whatever it is that you do. And you don't really feel like you matter anymore. And I don't know. It, it really, it, it's like the David Foster Wallace speech, right? Where he's, yeah. he's the speech where he's talking about, you know, this is water. Yeah. Is that the one you're quoting? Yeah, this is water. I exactly. love that one. Oh my God. It's so where good. He says this, he goes this convincing speech. Hey, I'm not here to come off as the wise you know, knowledgeable one, but, um, you know, yes, you're, you got all this hope and all this, you know, but life is not like this. Life is about, mm-hmm. you know, making become be, life is about becoming aware is mm-hmm. what he's really trying. not seeing it for what you want it to be, but seeing for what it really is mm-hmm. and then making choices, choosing how you act, yeah. not letting, you know, your situation and your, and your kind of isolated view of the world, um, uh, you know, uh, don't dictate you know, like your response. Yeah, dictate, right. You're going to have to make conscious, you're going to have to become aware and you're going to have to make conscious choices of how you react to situations mm-hmm. and stimulations and conflict and things like that. I know. And if you, yeah. and if you do that, you will be much better off. And then he kills himself. 20, I like, know. 10 years later. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, say what you will about David Foster Wallace for everyone mm-hmm. who's listening yeah. to this. I highly recommend you go listen to that entire commencement speech. I will find a link for a long version of that with a transcript. Um, it's fantastic. And there's also a book you can buy. Someone was able to reprint that entire speech. I want to, yeah. now that I think about it, I'm probably going to go buy that because it's one of those things that every time I've listened to it or read it or read parts of it, like the quote, the section that you just quoted, it's always hit home in a different way. Um, and it's just so fascinating. And especially to someone like him who is so profound and still ends up taking his own life. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's almost up for its own discussion at a different day, mm-hmm. because it's one of those things that some of these people that can think in this profound way still wind up having so much internal pain that they can't, you know, process it without taking the ultimate step. Um, yeah, and th- that really kind of hones in. He's suffering, right? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the, that's the transition that we start to, with the dialogue, we start to understand that the narrator, you know, played by um, Edward Norton, right? Edward Norton is suffering. We don't. He doesn't. He doesn't really kind of come out and say, "I'm suffering," and we don't necessarily put the word suffering, but we can. it's shown it's shown shown. (laughs) and then when you hear the word suffering that takes on a specific spiritual meaning um i didn't know right away until like 15 years from now you know (laughs) know, that how significant the word suffering really is you know you hear the word suffering you think oh yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. pain but until you truly understand what suffering is you know and how important it is to the human condition you know 
that this doesn't, this becomes even more profound. And what we, the suffering that he has is one, you know, you buy furniture, you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I'm ever going to need in my life. You buy that sofa. Then for a couple of years, you're satisfied no matter what uh, goes wrong, at least until you got the sofa issues handled, right? Because you say, you know, I got that social issue. It's, it's, I got everything I need. Then you got to go for the right set of dishes, the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug. Then you're trapped in your lonely, in your lonely, lovely nest and the things that you used to own, mm-hmm. now they own you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like that becomes like, you know, you know, he was constantly wanting the best. He, he's constantly looking for the, the, the best, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't even, it's not even like he's looking for perfection. He's looking for the best. Yeah. And yeah. you know, that pursuit for the best, I think is what sometimes causes our suffering as opposed to going for something that's perfect. Yeah. And I, and I make a distinction between best and perfect, right? The uh, perfect is not the best. It's not the worst. <laughs> it's the middle ground. <laughs> mm-hmm. To me, that's what perfect is. You know, uh, I, you know, uh, that's, that's, some, that's how I wasn't at the time. That's not how I thought I've kind of slowly in 20 years later, that's where I kind of, what I'm looking for is perfection, not the best, not mm-hmm. the worst, just what fits, what's comfortable, what makes me is it very, feel. That's very practical of you. Yeah. Applicative. But people, but when people hear the word perfect, they think new flaws, mm-hmm. right? And I, that's not how I define my, what perfection is to me. Perfection is, you know, my wife, <laughs> my kids, <laughs> you as a friend, mm-hmm. my friends. These are all perfect for me. My car, you know, I'm satisfied. You know, I don't feel com- – I'm not complete, but I'm not, you know, without. It's what's you know necessary, what right? It's exactly. Like, yeah, I like that. I, I, I wanted to look up because you were saying suffering is like we don't think about it, right? We say it, mm-hmm. we know it, but I, I looked it up. I wanted to look at the origin of the word. And from Latin, mm-hmm. it's sub, which means from below, and fere, mm-hmm. which is to bear. And I, you, when you look at the, the roots of this, this is, it's a really interesting word because it has a lot more depth to it, right? To, mm-hmm. to bear from below, right? And so when people think mm-hmm. of, of this idea of suffering, it's like this existential you know, bearing of this invisible weight that is always, mm-hmm. you know, dragging you down, I guess, for like an angel, exactly. almost. And uh, it's, it's funny, like, you know, when you talk about emotions, right, there's that little, there's those little smiley face things. They mm-hmm. say, you know, which, which smiley face is X, what smiley face is Y. Mm-hmm. You know, part of it is, is to maybe to test you for empathy or whatever. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, but, you know, the idea is, can you tell when someone's sad, when someone's happy, when someone's but can you tell when someone's suffering? And that's something I've become more aware of now mm. based on their dialogue, their mood. That's you know, a really I'll, like, to, to my wife, I'll, she, I'll say to her sometimes, I'll say, that person sounds like they're suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, and it's, you know, because of her background, she knows what, you know, she, she's um, studied Buddhism, you know, so she, so it's it kind of like, it's a way for us to connect on, mm-hmm. you know, we're a, a difficult emotional um, construct, right? Happy, yeah. sad, doesn't, but when we think that they're suffering, there's things we can do when someone's suffering, yeah. you know, to, you know, and then that, that might sometimes, one of the things we also try not to do is we try to establish boundaries, right? Like mm-hmm. we, I think both of us, my wife and myself, when we were younger, we would cross boundaries. We would, you know, do things um, if we saw someone need help or things like that. And mm-hmm. as we've gotten older, We've learned, especially with children, you know, with her kids, you know, we've tried, 
we try to have a healthy set of boundaries so that they can make mistakes or they can have a little bit of suffering. Just to be clear, when someone's suffering is, is, is necessary in order to experience joy. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is like, you know, we don't want to see someone suffer necessarily, but we don't necessarily suffering is not all bad or all good. It's just, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a condition. Right. And as people learn to manage their suffering, um, they can, ex- they can experience joy. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah. it's like, you can't have joy without some suffering. I, I don't think, you know, and if you do have joy and no suffering ever, I think it's rather artificial. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's like having, you have to have the, the, having the absence of, of happiness or, you know, sadness, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. know one without having experienced the other. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's where lessons from like, uh, Tolkien's writing because one of his things that he created in storytelling was the you catastrophe which you means good so it's the good catastrophe like where everything mm-hmm. <laughs> and even the it's like at the worst possible moment everything goes right <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of thing and it's this idea that you have this story that Fight Club is saying where I don't it's funny that as you're talking about it now back in the late 90s the world was a very different place because the computers had finally just started getting into the workplaces and things like that. It almost seems more apt to describe how most of people feel today on a given like Monday through Friday than you'd ever really think. I mean, can you imagine like, you know, fight club as its thing, right? It's a fight club, right? But how many actual fight clubs are there? Just not by that name, right? There's clubs yes. for so many different things. Pick your poison, and it doesn't have to be a poison. I'm just saying it as a, as a, um, social commentary. But it's like we're all mm. doing these things that are trying to cover up for the, the lapses or or inadequacies of our average lives. And yeah. you know, some of the some people they turn to drugs. Other people turn to video games. Other people turn to podcasting or mm. what whatever it is. And we have these things that we want to have deep, meaningful connections, or at the very least, as portrayed by the movie, provide a framework that allows us to feel more in tune with the present, like to to allow time to just fade into the background and all it is is you are just where your feet are and i'm going to use that quote a lot so get used to it because i love it (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think that there's the literal Mm -hmm. you know the literal historical you know uh context of the movie the the book Mm -hmm. you know there's this you know but then there's this kind of like ultimate you know spirituality uh connectedness yeah the the deeper the deeper story Right, where you know, and that eventually comes to fruition at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Where we we see where Tyler and the narrator are one, mm-hmm. but they were at you know, but we only perceive them as separate. Yet, much like we've talked about in, I guess, the previous podcast, you know, that when you're writing or when you're trying to illustrate thought into media, mm-hmm. you sometimes have to ex- you know have the uh, the dialogue between three parties, you know, the, and then the, like the Kirk Spock McCoy kind of triad, you know. Uh, yeah. Where you have the the logic and 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 in the the emotional side of it, you need to separate um, the entities to allow them to have the interplay that normally is playing exactly. out. Right, and that's that's a you know that's a standard storytelling uh, mechanism you mm-hmm. know that's used. And you know the that's the thing is when you take them, and that's the thing when Fight Club is you know you 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 kind of 
get hooked about the actual literal meaning of Fight Club. It's a men fighting each other. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the surface level, right? That's that's like the right. exciting thing that entices yeah. the people who are just trying to be entertained, right? You get to see Brad Pitt without his shirt on, right? Yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. Like that, that's the stuff that entices people just to be entertained by it, right? But then you can, mm-hmm. but when you start really analyzing what's going on, and you're like, oh, wait, why? You know, you ask yourself the question, why would someone want to be drawn to be beating the shit out of it want another person, but also get beat up themselves, right? By well, yeah, why and, would? And, and, and it's interesting. He's actually just beating himself up, right? Which You're right. Yeah. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's another. I didn't even connect that until recent. Wow, that's a whole other level of psychological like angst, right? We all beat each our beat ourselves up, you know, worse than we. <laughs> and what's interesting is this. Um, this whole discussion between you and I had was I made an off comment that the movie Fight Club has roots in Buddhism or there's connections to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And when I said it to you, you know, I didn't, I mean, I heard it and I felt it, but I didn't know. And so obviously when we started dis- discussing, we've been discussing about doing this episode for what? A month and, I, and a half, maybe? Months? No, 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 but we've been, it, this has been a while. I mean, like, yeah. about it. Because I kept asking you, you want to do this episode? And you're like, nah. And it's one of the things where I ask you and I just wait to see what happens. Right? Yeah, right. And then the fact that we got the 20th anniversary coming up this month, I think it's like everything's connected. So yeah. The conversation is going to be, it's going to be organic, but I think it's also going to be. And you were like, well, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting. And I really like to delve into that. Like you yeah. typically, that's your typical That's my normal response, response to right? just about everything. Yeah. yeah I really <laughs> want to dive into that. I didn't know that. So let me, let me go over and watch the movie again, just to see, you know, and see if I can see something. And you know, um, that, you know, that's, that's your approach. And then my approach was like, okay, well, let me go look into this Buddhism thing because I want to make sure I'm talking about, <laughs> is it really connected to Eastern philosophies? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, cause I, you know, I even said it to my wife, I said, I think there's some Buddhism in this. And my wife's like, who does not like violent movies at all? Mm-hmm. She's like, I think I might want to watch that movie. And her son, wow. or her stepson, they're like, <laughs> yeah, mom, you should watch this. <laughs> <'Cause it is." laughs> you know, that's and, cool. you know, he, but, you know, and then you can, you can go on the internet and say Buddhism Fight Club, and there are people who have done scholarly research papers, and they will teach you about the Eastern Buddhism the and traditions. And, yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, I do want to talk about a little bit about it, but this is, I'm not a scholar on yeah. that sense. This, this movie. I, I'm like curious, said, before we dive yeah. too far from there, was it yeah. intentional in part from the author, Chuck Palahniuk, to add these elements, or is it just kind of the how it seems to play out? Does it seem to fit philosophically? So the way Palnick works, from what I understand based on interviews and, you know, uh, stuff I've read, Mm -hmm. is he goes and experiences things. Like Mm -hmm. he goes to support groups or he rides in the back of an ambulance Mm -hmm. or, you know, he he goes into these environments and he becomes part of the environment. That's what he used to do when he was younger. Mm -hmm. And he will then take these experiences all different and then quilt them together like or patch them together like a quilt and that's his storytelling approach that's why some of these things that are said and some of these scenarios seem to be real based in reality right they're not yeah. they're fictional but yet they have a real they connection f- right? they feel very like fleshed out yeah. i guess is like the r- correct yeah. term i would use like it, it doesn't feel like he's stretching and like it doesn't feel it's like almost the artistic quality of it is that it's like, oh yeah, that could be like you cherry pick someone across the street and that could have been like their day kind of thing. Right. <laughs> and some of these dialogue, like the, there's a scene where, uh, you know, the narrator's uh, luggage is being 
um, hell, he was on an air. air oh yeah. A, I, yeah. I was laughing at that scene because I forgot about that scene. I was like, yeah. right. <laughs> and, it, and then the whole dialogue is like, well, we don't want to say it. You know, it, uh, it, it was, the, the suitcase was vibrating and we don't, we typically, it, sometimes it's a vibrator that gets turned on by, or it could be an electric toothbrush, but we don't, we don't say like, it's your dildo. It's a dildo. Or it's the, <laughs> yeah. Know, like, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. They have this whole, and that's Chuck Palahniuk probably experiencing that from like a security guard that works in a, in an airport, you know what I'm saying? Like that's something he takes and then quilted into his stories. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that that's kind of, you know, an interesting way. Uh, it was very novel at the time, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that you know, his, if you read like choke or survivor or any of these other books, there's these, there's these elements that are all in there. There's mm-hmm. some base of reality and they're just knitted together. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, so I started to understand his writing style, and I've I've definitely read through probably his early stuff. His later stuff, I haven't had a chance to uh, read as much. Okay, uh, but you know, uh, but I have you know, he's really prolific. He probably writes a book about once a year. Maybe he's on a two-year rotation. Yeah, he's a um, lot of books. Yeah, but um, you know, but you know, there that's his style, and I think that I like that style. It's it's sardonic, and it's definitely. You know, there, there's not, there's not a lot of, there, there are sometimes there are happy endings, but most of the time it's just like in the end of Fight Club, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of a profound ending. Yeah. It's something that slaps you across the face and you're like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You're, you question the whole story that you've been fed the whole time. And you're like, hold on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so part of this discussion where this is my thirties, you kind of grew up in this, you know, you were aware of this movie, but then you kind of, I think identified a bit with the Heath, the Joker you know, as yeah. a, as kind of a villain, you know, and you were talking a bit about the 2010 version of Heath Ledger, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger's version of the Joker. And now what we got today is, you know, you know, 10 years later or 20 years after Fight Club is the, you know, the Joaquin Phoenix version of the Joker. And, you, you know, there is some parallels. There's some similarities here, you know. Yeah. Did you want to? Like, so I would explain, like, and this is trying to be as spoiler free as possible since this is relatively close to the release of the film. But, you know, when you look at these characters, right? So if you look at Heath Ledger's version of the Joker, it's, it's, it's very much rooted in the comic book style of what the character represents. It's, it is as true of a representation that you can get, but also making it gritty and real at the same time. You know, because you're dealing with a character, and I think this is what makes the Joker as a character as fascinating as he is. Um, if you're really, if you're a philosophy nerd... The Joker is the nihilistic archetype of, like, ever. I don't know if there is an any more accurate representation of the nihilistic archetype. Um, and, and really what it, it comes down to is the, is Batman is the exact opposite. And he is the, you know, the, the lawful good, or eh, I don't know if it, is it lawful good? He's more, cha- he's more chaotic good. I would yeah, say. I would say chaotic good because cause the, the Batman has one rule, right? He won't kill people. And life, you know, mm-hmm. life is his ultimate thing and, and being responsible or being a symbol for those who can't stand up for themselves. And the Joker is the exact and, and, he, and he doesn't operate by the laws, you he, know, well, he, he makes his own law. law. Yeah, he makes his own yeah, law. Yeah. Or he, he sees what is good and he makes the decision to stand up for what he believes is right or wrong when the mm-hmm. law does not uphold its sworn duty, I guess. Um, yeah. 
And and so when you look at a character like the Joker, you really get into this deep psychological framework and philosophical framework of of what does it mean to be nihilistic. And when you have scenes, I'm going to quote the the Dark Knight, um, the the scene where he the Joker burns the money, right? He's like taking over the city and he's like becoming this crime boss, but. He doesn't give a shit about money. He just, th- you know, lights gasoline on fire and just right in front of all the criminals and just lights it up mm-hmm. like no big deal. You know, like it doesn't even phase him and he just starts laughing or like the scene where he's walking away from the, the hospital after he released uh, Harvey Dent and he's like hitting mm-hmm. the button and he's like trying to make it explode and then it doesn't explode yeah. right away. And then all of a sudden it explodes and you like get scared like That is a scene that shows this person, even though he is about this chaotic stuff in this nihilistic world, is he still doesn't care. And because the reason he's the Joker is that the the sense of the character is it's everything is a joke. Even my own life is a joke. If I live or die, shrug, who cares? It's just a joke anyways, right? Like you just laugh it off. It's like one bad joke away from, you know, the next catastrophe. And, you know, there's, there is no good. Like, even if he, you know, even if he is something is positive, it, there is no point to that because it, you know, it's just one step closer to being dead. Like you said, like you opened it with, right. <laughs> one minute closer to being a, a last laugh kind of thing. Um, yeah. And so like when you have a story like this new version with Joaquin Phoenix, it adds nuance to a character that has no backstory. Like that's one of the, like the comic book, cornerstones or commandments right like there's certain things in comic books that thou shalt not be touched which is kind of funny um like in spider-man uncle ben staying dead is like one of those things like uncle ben always is dead um for spider-man whereas like the joker has never had a backstory up until this point which makes him probably one of the more compelling characters because it's like how does you know you ask yourself the question like how does someone become a character like the joker and this new version is an attempt to answer that question which winds up having a lot more social commentary, which is along the same lines of what the, this Fight Club actually kind of talks about. Is like, how does someone become so delusioned by their position in life and what society says they should or should not act like, and then how and they think, interpret those things? Yeah, and I think there's... T- there's two things I like to separate. Number one, Fight Club is pretty good by itself, right? Even though there are two additional comic books that were written, like Fight Club 2 and Fight Club 3. Yeah, I've never read anything else other than watching the movie, yeah. so that's just yeah. common. But this, this, this book is the beginning, middle, and end for me. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily need to have... But the Joker is definitely something that has, um, you know, context based on um, history, right? Like mm-hmm. when he first was created... Over each every ten years, you know, mm-hmm. society is changing, and the, the the writers themselves, each era of the Joker has a reinterpretation of mm-hmm. it, right? And I think that's you know, I think the Joker, Batman, any superhero that's been in the you know the pop culture, reimagining them every so many years, I think is a good exercise, right? I I, I don't you know it's good exercise mm-hmm. uh, commercially because it makes more money, right? <laughs> but I think it, you know, but it's more like you know television back in the, you know, you know, stories and, and such storytelling has evolved. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the characters themselves have to evolve and they have to have more dimension. So would you, would you yeah. call it like, it, it'd be like a, it's like a, like a software update for the myth. If you think about it, right? Like, yeah. So all up, yeah. up until this point in human history, all of the stories that we had kind of have like a, a, 
a firm a firm date, right? Like if you think about like right. Zeus and the Greek mythologies and all those like right. the Odyssey, right? Those stories are kind of set in their ways. But this is like the first time in human history that we've had these these mythological figure figureheads, right, in the form of comic books and movies that can be continually revised as they move forward in history because they have taken on a percent presence and a persona, right? They represent something bigger than what it is that you know, they're not controlled by a single person, right? Or telling yeah. off a story. They're they're representing but, something deeper. But to be clear, I think that those versions have to be few and far between. We can't have it every three years, much Correct. like they were doing with Spider-Man. Like the problem with Spider-Man to me was they tried to reimagine it multiple times, right? You know, within yes. like a seven-year period. Like I'm, no one. I'm good with not, the not everybody <laughs> needs to know the origin story every time. Like right. they did, and, they did it too many times and they beat it to death. Right, and so that's not a good. That's not a good. That's not a good example. Of, but Batman's a perfect example where mm-hmm. they revisited it. You know, almost twenty years after. Especially know, the, Michael Keaton. The Nolan version is is really right. the high watermark because they mm-hmm. took something that, you know, up until that point, superheroes and stuff like that, and was or mythological type figures had been like whimsical, right? Especially Batman. Mm-hmm. Batman was like the wham pow, you know. <laughs> it was original Batman, yeah, yeah. The one that made the television. Yeah, yeah uh, Adam West Batman, I believe it was. And, yeah. and and it's like you know, you can't take that serious to some degree. But then all of a sudden you have this new gritty reimagined version of Batman that mm-hmm. grounds it in a world that looks a lot like Chicago, right? I mean, that's what Gotham right. is based off of. Gotham Gotham is Chicago. Um and, it looks like Pittsburgh. <laughs> right, it's confusing. <laughs> and um, when you have something that it looks like, oh yeah, that could be, you know, a street corner down the street from mine, you know, and mm-hmm. and you kind of have this connection to something that it, it looks like a world that we live in, maybe not exactly mm-hmm. our world, but close enough that you're like, all right, yeah, you start looking at it in a different way. And it allows yeah. you to play in a realm that allows you to experience these ideas and say, what if? basically. <laughs> so looping this back to Fight Club, what's interesting is, yeah, we have these superheroes and this, you know, the kind of the villain uh, archetype and such. But yet, what's re- what's rather interesting about Fight Club is that this can represent you. Or, and I do think it has more association with men than it does for women. Um, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. I don't mean to be sexist by it, but I mean, I do think women sometimes, like, they kind of play off of it, like women fight clubs and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But um, there is this kind of, like, uh, um, social commentary about the, the changing role of masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's, that's kind of an undertone there. And whereas men are supposed to be strong in this, here we see that this the narrator is vulnerable, right? He's, you know, he's he's nesting. He's building his little nest of perfect of perfect things. You don't think of men actually like that's not t- typically associated with men. <laughs> no, you not know, at all. <laughs> they're trying to make home, right? They're, my wife would say, "You'd be happy with just a bed and a computer mm-hmm. and, a, and a and a box of pizza." Yeah, she's right. I'm very simple, but yet I'm the one that bought all the furniture for the house and such. <laughs> I like. Well, I have a back. I have a background in fine art, and I, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, there is that. There is the kind of there is this kind of men versus women roles that are being, and the the character Marla kind of represents the role of women in in this in this movie although 
you know, I, not being very educated, I, I'll probably just, I'll say something stupid about it. So I, I just want to say that there's representation of women in here. And this woman is, while she's vulnerable, she's rather strong, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, she's, her, she challenges. Her character is very progressive yeah. for the time period in which this movie came oh, out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, looking at, yes, it, yes, looking at it now, it almost, it almost feels like that, like, well, you're like, whoa, you're, you're kind of taking it back even today, like someone with that yeah. sense of character or know what they stand for. Mm-hmm. And she has some really great dialogue in both in the book and in the movie. You know, she mm-hmm. has some rather interesting thing, like about the condom being the glass slipper. Yeah. You know, that was something <laughs> where, you know, where basically you don't have to, but what she's saying is you don't have to, you know, you can throw away the condom. You don't have to throw away the person, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, it's like, there's that, they kind of like you don't have to have these deep loving relationships anymore to, in order to connect with people. And that's interesting. That's an interesting aspect of it. You know, I'm not, that's not really what drew me to the movie. It's just, it's there. What drew me to the movie, I think is this narrator is suffering and, mm-hmm. you know, he's got insomnia and he, you know, that's like he the, has the these, first, like, it seems like there's like a, a lot of inflection points in this movie. Right. So it starts out yeah. with this insomnia thing. And, and yeah. you know that kind of gets him to this next stage, which you'll, you're going to expand on. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he, he says, like with insomnia, nothing's real far away. Everything's a copy of a copy of a copy, right? And I, mm-hmm. you know, you don't. And so you, you know, you, if you've ever been sleep deprived, that's how life sometimes feels. You know, it's like wow. you know, or when you're, or even more importantly, when you're just not aware, like when you're mm-hmm. just going through the motions, everything feels like you don't find joy in things. You know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he realizes that, you know, he's at an inflection point where he's like, he's looking for something to help him, you know, like a drug or something. And the doctor won't prescribe anything. He says, why don't you go down to the, you know, men with testicular cancer group? He <laughs> 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 starts showing up at these, uh, these events and he becomes hooked, right? So he's like going to all these support groups. And, you know, eventually, you know, he comes like, you know, he finally starts to cry. Right. And it's, you know, I let, he basically he says, I let go. I lost an oblivion, dark and silent and complete. I found freedom. Mm-hmm. Losing all hope was freedom. So basically he was Whoa. trying to hold on to hope, but by letting go of hope, like letting go of something it, that he felt was holding him back, he found his freedom, mm-hmm. you know, but then Marla starts showing up and then Marla becomes this kind of like, you know, she's a faker. She's a copy. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so funny she's because a, the commentary he has about her, right? The faker and the copy. Yeah. It's like, it's him. <laughs> yeah. It's him too. It's like, he doesn't, he's almost got this like cognitive dissonance about or, or it is the fact that it she is him representative that he can't stand her because he can't stand himself. Cause he knows that he's right. faking it. <laughs> right. It's hilarious. It, it's so such that, a funny thing. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, then, you know, he starts getting more, you know, he's going to the support groups and getting agitated with her. He's trying, he tries to get her, he tried to divide up the support groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then he gets called away on business, right? So he's flying, you know, he's flying around, you know, and he's imagining when he's flying that the plane will burst into flames, right? <laughs> <laughs> and be, but then he, he wakes, he kind of becomes aware of something and he's sitting next to this guy who's, and he starts this conversation and, you know, he starts talking about single-serving friends and single-serving this. And then, you know, the Tyler Durden character, you know, he, you know, he kind of looks at him blankly. He goes, he goes, he goes it's kind of my thing. He's like, oh, I get it. Clever. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so they have that, that brief connection. And then, you know, 
he he looks at the placard card like you know it says you know uh, uh, what's it survival at fifty thousand feet you know? yeah and so he had this is the first like kind of lesson that Tyler teaches to the narrator you know oxygen gets you high in a uh, in, in a in an emergency you take giant panic breaths right mm-hmm. you know when you're like upset this is part of. <laughs> Um, mindfulness, right? You know, it's like, oh and you're upset. You're, so by slowing your breathing, you're supposed to relax, right? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you know, basically by, because you're, if you put the oxygen, you start taking these like deep breaths, you suddenly become euphoric, docile, you accept your fate. It's all right here. Emergency water landing, 600 miles per hour, <laughs> blank faces, calm as Hindu cows, right? And that's the first lesson of enlightenment, right? That's the first, he becomes like a Buddha in a sense in his, in, in, in he's teaching things to to the narrator. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what happens is they've land. That's the scene where the, he loses his luggage. You see Tyler kind of going down the, <laughs> the, the runway pass. If you look, if you look, Behind the scenes, you see Tyler steals the other guy's car. Mm-hmm. You know, you only hear about this in like, like if you watch it like a thousand times or whatever, or listen to the, uh, the the director's commentary. But then you know, uh, Jack or Nero arrives home. His, his apartment's blown up, and so you know, <laughs> he has Tyler's card, so gives Tyler a call, and he hangs up immediately. And then he, the call comes back, star sixty nine, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they meet at a bar, and then. You know, that's when they start. They they have that cut. They they have that kind of um, camaraderie, and then that's when Fight Club begins, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the drinking, and then they start punching each other, and there's a lot of dialogue there. And but one of the I think one of the things I take away from that is the um, the things you own end up owning you, right? Yeah, kind of line. that's a really good quote. So they take up, you know, they take up uh, residence with each other, right? And you know, they're like the uh, these. They kind of say something about being Aussie and Harriet. You know, they have this like old dilapidated house, and they can live on the side. And they're just, you know, and then the fight clubs continue. And they, you know, he shows up to work all disheveled and you know, bleeding. And stuff. <laughs> but yeah. the number one rule: you don't talk about. We don't talk about. <laughs> And then that's, that slowly catches on, you know, and then people show up and they keep having fight clubs. And that's where it gets all kind of cool and, you know, great rock music. But, <laughs> but then there's this kind of middle scene and it was a scene I shared with you, um, you know, about Tyler in the dialogue where he says, you know, our fathers were our models. This is kind of the pit, the, the pivotal point to which, you know, Tyler uh, proves to the narrator his way of thinking, his, his kind of escapism, you know, this is what's holding him back mm-hmm. from, you know. And so, you know, he says, our, you know, our fathers were the models, our models for gods. And if our fathers bailed, what does it tell you about God? Okay. Ooh. Have you ever considered the possibility that God doesn't like you? He never wanted you? In all probability, he hates you? This is not the worst thing that can happen. We don't need him. Right. We don't need God. Now for someone like myself who grew up with God in his life, you know, there was a church in my backyard, you know, I went to that church, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that this was, you know, you know, I was it, like, I had, I was mad at God turned away from God. I always felt that maybe I'm just not good enough for mm-hmm. God. You know, like, you know, the idea of God is that, you know, you, you should, you should be accepted if you give up all your sins and all that stuff. But there's always this kind of like not good enough. Yeah. Feeling in the back of my it mind, that, in the know, background there. 
Yeah, even if, you know, and you say, well, you know, Jesus, you'll, you know, if you confess your sins, you accept Jesus Christ in your life, you, you know, just, these all sound interesting, but from a, you know, from an analytical perspective, they don't make sense. Yeah. It's fairy tales, right? You know, I don't need magic tricks to believe in a higher power. <laughs> right. you know, I don't need water. <laughs> it turns into <laughs> a mythology, right? As we were just talking right. about. <laughs> when you make the mythology too airy and too intangible, it doesn't, right. it doesn't hit home unless you're, how do I say this? It's like you have to have a certain level of exposure to be able to suspend the disbelief. Because you know, exactly. like you know that it's not real to some degree or another. But there's a sense of belief that you have to have faith, right? To mm-hmm. to be able to understand the message that it's trying to send you. That's all it's really right. kind of comes down to. Um regardless of whether or not it's true is not my, <laughs> not my place to decide. So right. th- yeah, I, I, mean, I get it a hundred percent. And for me, you know, it's like, it's not that I felt God was, I mean, there's times I felt that God didn't love me or didn't like me or I, he was ashamed of me. Like mm-hmm. when my grandfather dies on my birthday. Right. You know? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 10 years old. And I'm trying to make sense of this event. Mm-hmm. You know, no kid should have to make sense of that type of event, but I did. You know, I had to, and it became an inflection point in my life where I was not very competent. And, you know, my caregivers didn't know what to do. My mom didn't know what to do. My stepfather, yeah. my real father, you know, there's a kid who's just horribly suffering and has no, you know, no understanding. Mm-hmm. But it became a point for connecting with my mom. You know, I, 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 that's where games come, you know, in my life. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that. And, but here's a situation back to the story where we, we maybe unawareably we were going to church or, you know, I was going to church with my wife and, but I wasn't feeling connected to the church. I wasn't feeling connected to the religion. I felt that there was, it was somewhat style. You know, some people were going just the church I was attending was more, was it's, it was in a more affluent area. So you saw like people like sniping about the minister and, you know, it was just kind of like, I was like, well, you know, they thought they were, they could teach, but they could sermon better and stuff. And I was like, Hmm, but this isn't, I don't think this is God's fault or anything like that. I just think that this is the interpretation that's left. In fact, the minister of that church was amazing, but um, you know, uh, just, but it, it kind of, there is this divide between mm-hmm. we want to be divine, we want to be connected to the divine, but there is a barrier between us and the divine. Is it also, it's not human. Would you say it's like a sense of uh, purpose? Like it's, it's like being in, feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is that what well, you would, would you, would that be re- I would say that there's there's the aspect of that, but there's more of like the seeds that are within you. Mm-hmm. You have anger. You have you know you have anger. You have jealousy. Mm-hmm. You have all these seeds, and it feels like Christianity is like eh, you need to kind of just get rid of that in favor yeah. of. And the interesting thing about Buddhism that I've discovered is that they're all within you. Mm-hmm. You don't get rid of them. You just learn to cultivate them differently like yeah. you know when oh you get God. angry <laughs> when you get angry you learn to take the anger and you learn to Can you know compost the stuff that's you're hitting you know, angry. on something that's like really front of brain for me right now um, right so we, when, we're gonna get angry we're gonna get frustrated you're gonna get you know you're not always gonna make the right decision you know you're gonna you know it's 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 there and it's okay that it's there it's part of you mm-hmm. it's not you know separate from you don't feel like you're sinning 
or jealous. You know, you don't have to feel that way. But this is something I discovered 20 years later, not something I was, you know, it was fully. I felt like when I made mistakes, like God or my wife or my family or my friends wouldn't love me anymore, wouldn't care about me. So it kind of, this, this approach right here, like our father, you know, this whole line here, it goes on to say, fuck damnation, man. Fuck redemption. <laughs> we are God's unwanted children. So be it. Meaning we don't need that shit. We can be on our own, right? You know, with all this judgment and criticism, you know, may I never be complete. May I never be content. May I never be perfect. Maybe self-improvement isn't the answer. Maybe self-destruction is the answer. Okay? So, not that I'm saying that that motivated me to go on Bender, but this is where the Joker can come from. This is where, you know what I'm saying? Like, this kind of, like, you know, of, of right. awareness can be a pivotal point in people's lives. And it becomes a pivotal point in this guy's life. You know, where, you know, he's suffering. He's feeling like, you know, the, his hand is on fire. And Tyler has the solution. And if he only, if this guy will only stop going to escape and be real in the moment, the narrator has to be real with Tyler at the moment. Tyler will then absolve him of his suffering and put the vinegar on his uh, chemical. Burn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's that scene is like you know, it it, it causes you know the narrator kind of gives in to some degree, but then he stops. But he also doesn't. He does. He like he gives in. He starts doing Fight Club. But he's still resisting it, you know. Like Bob, Bob shows up on the doorstep, right? Bob with bitch tits, and you know, <laughs> and that scene, he was like that. That scene where Bob's being like, you know, Tyler says, "Get out of here, you're fat," you're not. and then you know, and he stays there for three days. It became like kind of a uh, if you really wanted to be part of the Fight Club, you had to stay there and you had to work in the. the basically, you had to take a residence, which is a very Buddhist kind of thing, and work around the place planning and such. Um, that to me, I felt was something spiritual or something Buddhist. I don't think it really is based in any. It could be part of a, a Buddhism practice. You know, Buddhism is rooted, you know, thousands of years ago. So there's been in the East, there are so many you know, different groups of people. There's there's a there's different cultures or different. You know, it is a very complicated. Even though the the you know the Dharma itself is rather from the teachings from the Buddha are pretty consistent. The way that they're practiced and interpreted and such take on different meanings during different eras, right? So um, so there is quite possibly there is, you know, if you did some research, you might find there was a, the, the, that they pulled this little piece of patchwork um, for the story there. It seems spiritual. It seemed like, you know, but I don't know if it's true or not. But it did, you know, it connected with me a little bit. Like, yeah, that seems like you, in order to be in the club, you have to kind of go through the initiation. So, this this dialogue about God hooks in the narrator and makes him a believer of the Fight Club, right? Mm-hmm. As Tyler is working and he's getting more recruits, and you know people are talking about Fight Club, even though they're not supposed to be talking about Fight Club, you know <laughs> Tyler starts to address those folks, right? And he says, you know, he'll have this dialogue: "You're not your job. You're not how much money you have in the bank. You're not your car mm-hmm. you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You're not your fucking khakis." You're the all singing, all dancing crap of the world, you know. And that, this is the kind of lines that me and my friends will quote one one another. You know, like we'll say to each other, like "You're not your fucking khakis." You know, you know basically to put ourselves in place, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, it becomes, but it becomes like that thing that, that kind of like to be mindful. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Don't be, you know, it, 
in Buddhism, uh, to practice mindfulness, you know, they sometimes have these things called datas, which are little sayings to kind of keep you in the moment, to keep you like brushing your teeth, to stay aware of you're brushing your teeth. This becomes like a data to us, you know, where we're kind of like, don't get too, don't get, you know, don't do, do, get, get too full of yourself, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, yep. and then this is, this next line I'm going to kind of quote is also very pivotal but to the larger audience, right? I see all this potential. I see all of, it, all of it squandered. God damn it. An entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes and working so we buy shit that we do not need. We are the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we're millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. That's when I think Ooh. you get the entire the entire audience hooked. It's like Rocky, you know, like when he punches uh, Drago or something. <laughs> that line is like, oh yeah, <laughs> I want to join a fight club. <laughs> I mean, I mean that quote right there. I think if you told my generation, that quote without the context, most yeah. of them would be nodding their head. And, like if you told it at a commencement speech, right? Mm. <laughs> like like we, how we started this conversation. I, I think my generation, which is technically the millennial generation. So take that with what you may. Um, yeah. We would agree with that. And I, and I think, you know, even more so now than it was when that was written initially, like with, cause back then social media didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> social media isn't what it is today. And these didn't have these cell phones that are in our pockets that are embedded dopamine drips in our brain. And it, it's, it really strikes home for me because I, even though I'm not that kind of person, I'm not deluding myself to believe in that sort of materialistic worldview or whatever it is that you want to call it. But I, I do see at the, the, you know, snake pit that that turns into and mm-hmm. when you when you were able to disconnect yourself from that you know pattern in, of thinking or uh, trap hole or trap door of that, it's it's really stark contrast. You know, it like slaps you in the face, and you're just like, oh, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> like it's one of those things that once you see it, right? Once you become aware, which is what you've been circling around this whole time, you you realize that the things that society tells us to chase are usually the things that are the most unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you don't, and you only you become aware of that later in life, you know, at the, when you, you know, at first, like when you're, you're told like, you can be anything. you. Want. Yeah. And to some extent that is true, but at some extent there are things that will hold you back. Right. Mm-hmm. Mostly what will hold you back, even though you, they can put, you can say your, your, your fi- financial situation or your environment it's you that holds you back. And it's because you don't feel entitled to step forward. Mm-hmm. One of the things I, re- I remember reading in Malcolm books, I think it was like on, on success, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it said that in uh, um, uh, different culture, different, um, in poorer cultures, uh, the sense of entitlement to ask questions is not there. Like, you know, and so that's one of the things they have to work on, you know, oh, really? is to try to find, yeah, they have to find ways to, um, empower people to be able to ask questions like if a doctor or, you know, like there's this kind of like, you know, you're getting this, you know, give these healthcare so you don't ask any questions. Yeah. I think 
to, you know, for me, I, I have a great relationship with my doctor. You know, I can ask him, you know, if you ask, like, I think if you did a survey, do you trust your doctor? Um, a lot of people might say no. They mm-hmm. might feel like the doctor, the nurse, or whatever. In fact, what was funny is um, pharmacists are somewhat trusted more, at least they were 20 years ago when my wife, my ex-wife was a pharmacist. She said most people will go to the pharmacist and ask them about drugs more so than their doctors. because, And that's the reality is that the pharmacist probably knows more about the drugs than the doctors do. The doctors yeah. are they're just prescribing, you know, kind of, yeah. You know, they're, they're generally being marketed to. Um, and, you know, <laughs> everything's rather new. So the, it's really difficult, especially for new drugs to find any, you know, they have to kind of trust the marketing to guide them in that case. Yeah. So, so the pharmacists are usually the ones that knew the most about it. And we're seeing that change in culture today, you know, with, you know, we're seeing more team based medicine, not individual medicine, especially in mental health care now. And, you know, going to the one practitioner is, is, is rather, um, detrimental i think you know mm-hmm. because you know they they have their biases they you know it's like your financial advisor you know people they, you hear about financial advisors failing their investors all the time because you know and they they ponzi schemes and stuff because people just trust that you know they don't know how their money works <laughs> and they don't want to learn how to and then mm-hmm. so they're easily scammed and you know yeah the same goes with the doctors now you know so what we're seeing is an improvement in medicine is that team-based approaches to healthcare are dealing um, are getting better outcomes to some degree. Mm-hmm. There's still a need for accountability there, right? So there's got to be one person where the buck stops. You know, you have to have accountability, and no matter you need to check and balance in every system. Otherwise, right. there is going to be someone along the line that it's going to yeah. just take advantage of it. And it's not it's not yeah. to say that person meant to do that in in malice, yeah. but in any given system, if there is wiggle room people will take it. It's just a natural mm-hmm. human tendency. It's like to say what there's a cool quote about like, if you could, it's, it's every human has the capacity for evil. It's just the opportunity to do so is exactly. different. You know, like if you're given the opportunity to steal most, and you're not going to get caught, obviously is the, is the caveat there. <laughs> then, then you'll most likely take it because then who knows, right? <laughs> and that's where and that's where Tyler starts his descent into the evil evil side of it, where he starts dehumanizing people. Like he says, mm-hmm. "Listen up, maggots! You're not special. <laughs> you're not beautiful or unique snowflakes." And this is, comes after that speech, right? Because he's saying, "You know, we're all part of the same compost heap. <laughs> we're all we're all the same part of the decaying organic matter as everything else. We're all singing, all dancing crap of the world. We're all part of the same compost heap." Mm-hmm. So once again, he's enlightened. You're not. You have to trust him. He's going to lead you. And this flight club was just the beginning. And now, and now the mo- it's moved out of the basement. And it's now called Project Mayhem. So he's got a project now. Oh. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then, so then, you know, eventually the narrator says, there's something's up here, right? There's all these like things. So he starts flying around. He starts finding that Tyler's everywhere, right? And mm-hmm. he finally finds Tyler. And confronts him, and this time now Tyler's got his head shaved. He's wearing a fur coat or something. <laughs> he becomes a gang leader, <laughs> right? Basically. And they have this confrontation. He goes, "You know, that's where Fight Club is just the beginning. We moved out of the basement called Project Man." And then the confrontation with him and the narrator. Tyler's response is like, "Hey, you created me. I didn't create some loser alter ego to make myself feel better. Take some responsibility." So this is when mm-hmm. he starts to realize that, "Hey, Tyler's me. I'm the figure. It's a figment of my imagination." <laughs> That's so, so trippy. <laughs> right. 
And then it gets to the last part. He goes, fuck what you know. You need to forget what you know. That's your problem. Fuck about what you think about, about your life and your mm-hmm. friendships and especially about you and me. You know, the first rule of Project Mayhem is you don't ask questions. And that's the sign of a cult. <laughs> right? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it, it's, it's funny as you're saying this too, it's because there's there's many examples throughout history of people who've gotten this this enlightenment trap, right? Mm-hmm. Because the problem with saying you're enlightened is there's no criteria for anyone to be enlightened. It's literally, if, if you said you were enlightened, I would have no idea yeah. in it, whether or not assessing that is true or not. There's literally zero, there's zero capacity in any like actual testable way to say you are an enlightened being or not, other than that person says they have had touched enlightenment. Like it's, it's, it's like, like it's like pornography. You know it when you see it, right? Yeah, I guess, <laughs> but I, I feel like you can t- true test that one a little bit easier. <laughs> well, enlightenment, you know, uh, is the ultimate. Um, I guess the ultimate. Uh, Achievement in Buddhism, right? Right. You know, you, know, you achieve enlightenment, mm-hmm. which means you, in sense, you achieve pure joy. You know, um, oneness with the universe. I think is another yeah. description they would yeah. they use. And like, so how this relates to me is, you know, this movie and its presence in my life begins the the dialogue, the 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 first step towards going beyond my my secular religious beliefs and looking. Um, you know, and looking for more um, connection, looking for a deeper connection. You know, you know what's of, funny is I'm, I'm like thinking of the title of what this podcast is going to be as you're talking about this right now. And it's literally probably going to be what I learned from fight club 20 years later. <laughs> it's probably not a bad idea. I, it, just, it just sounds so like it's, it just fits so perfectly with how the story is because it's just showing how much you've grown as a person to be able to look at this yeah. story and, and, unpack so much more about how it pertains to your own life, which is just yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I mean, what was the one quote I wanted to say about if you wake up in a, there's a quote in here where if you wake up in a different place in a different time key, or if you, if you could wake up in a different place, can I wake up as a different person? Ooh. And I say that, yes, that is possible because I don't think that we are the same people. There's a, there was a book called The Power of the Subconscious Mind, and mm-hmm. one of the theories they said is that we change every seven years mm-hmm. at, a, at a physiological state, like, you know, the skin cells die. Yeah, all, all yeah, your cells yeah, in your yeah. body have been now, regrown. I'm sure if there's a scientist in our audience, they're probably going to disagree with us, you know, and that's mm-hmm. fine because I'm not really trying. But I, I'm saying philosophically, we are not the same people we were seven years ago. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've heard people say that um, memory, the mem- memories that we have are based on emotional uh, engrams and attachments, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's what, you know, so like when you were seven, where you're 14, where you're 21, you're 28, these are all kind of inflection points in your life. Can you look back those seven years and, and figure out how you thought what you, how you were that at that time and how you are now? Mm-hmm. And at the time then, I was lost a bit spiritually, you know, um, I felt disconnected, I felt alone, you know, in a sense, and I felt lost, you know, even though I was successful, and I had friends, and I had loved ones and family, I felt that something was on the horizon, some kind of doom, and it did happen to me, mm-hmm. I went through a divorce, you know, I had a nervous breakdown, um, but, 
I also recovered. And, you know, that was the, the best part of it. Like I, I did fall down, but I got back up. Mm-hmm. And when I got back up, I was more independent than I was previously. Before I was, I, you know, I was relying on living with my wife and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, and then that, that time between my divorce and meeting my, my new wife was about seven, eight years. Um, I mean, I dated around and such. Right. But it's funny when my wife and I, when we talk about uh, getting married, you know, like, but I, what I told her was the reason why I wanted to get married because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Not so much, and you know, it's, you, let's face it, women want to feel like you know they're the you know loved, and, and that that's true. All the thing I love my wife, I care about her, the special one. But yeah, but it felt right. You know, what mm-hmm. I'm saying like if the previous marriage felt like it was, I needed to, it was the thing you had to do. Oh, right? okay, yeah. This felt right for some, mm-hmm. but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know why it felt right, but I just knew it was right. Remember I told you, it was like, why does it matter? <laughs> yeah, that was like your favorite thing <laughs> to say. Right, <laughs> doing what's right is matters. Mm-hmm. And, and more importantly, I think that, we, we that, were together. That's, a, that's we, embedded in a, in a sense of responsibility that is core to who you are. Yeah. And, you know, for me, what was interesting is my wife and I, we met dancing and... Mm-hmm. We were together for about a year, a year and a half. And part of my relationships with me is they start off one. The first year is great. The second year shows signs of stress and problems and such. And by the third year, it's like we're on this like road to nowhere. It's going to end. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> That's surely my relationship cycles for me. And, I, and I'm not a guy that dates around or looks at other women or mm-hmm. something. That's what that's what happens in my in my relationship with women. You know, yeah. uh, love. Um, what was interesting is with my ex-wife, you know, it was actually a little bit longer cycle, but, but the cycle still eventually got to the point where we were trying to, you know, we were trying to hurt one another. Mm-hmm. And when Jackie and I, you know, we went through a year and a half and things just didn't, we weren't on the same page. We just weren't on the same page. And we broke up for about a year. And during that time, I also, I went through kind of this, like, I thought it was the right person, but then it wasn't. So I kind of had to set back. And so I said, well, what was the things holding me back? And number one, I didn't like the way I looked. My teeth, were, I, had a, I had a missing tooth because when I was little, um, I was playing and I hit my face on the corner of a, of a bar and it caused my, my tooth to kind of get jammed up to my, my gum. Mm-hmm. So I had to, so what happened was my canine came in, my came in and t- took a left turn and went in the roof of my mouth. Mm-hmm. So I always felt like my teeth were kind of like, you know, you know, just were kind of gnarly. Yeah. And so I, I went and I paid and I had the, the, I had this tooth extracted. And the interesting thing was when I was little and I had that tooth extracted, they had to put me under to do it. Mm-hmm. And I had this kind of weird kind of like state, you know, of mine. When I had the other procedure done to remove it, I got in touch with that little kid. You know, it was like, wow. it was too and it was really trippy. And part of what I, you know, I was in, you know, when you're in that kind of meditative state, now understand the second time I was put under, I was using nitrous oxide. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that when I was under nitrous oxide, now there's two states of nitrous oxide. There's kind of like this, like kind of like the calm state. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's another, you can get in much deeper, like almost like you're being anesthetized and you're out, like you're sleeping and you can't have no control. Mm-hmm. This is what happened in the second time. 
But it was interesting is I was awake enough to know that when something was about to hurt, like when he was about to do something, I knew it was going to hurt. And I stopped him. I kind of, you know, I surprised these folks <laughs> like when I did this. It was like, and oh, really? Wow. Part, yeah. So I was, I was fully aware. And out of the state I came, I realized that everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I, that was what I, you know, remember I told you I was worried <laughs> and I constantly worried. <laughs> But I, I've learned to stop worrying. Yeah. And at, at that point, I realized that all I have to do is walk a, a better path, a more uh, a more righteous path. You know, that's all I have to do. I don't. I have to do hard things. I don't have to do the hardest <laughs> thing. But I, I can't just sit around not doing things. Right. Well, it's hard and, things for you, right? It's, that doesn't matter right. who's you're not you're not referencing anyone else but yourself. Right. And you know, Fight Club was definitely in my mind a little bit, but not so much like I'm trying to, I am trying to change the world. I'm not trying to blow up, you know, I don't think that you blow up. If, if anything, I'd like to see us have access to healthcare mm-hmm. and treatments. That's to me how I'd like to change the world. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know, want to blow up all capitalism yeah. or anything like that. But right. So there's a couple things that I, I want to expand on here because I think it's really yeah. important. Um, yeah. But like when you were talking about how you, you, you were, you know, scarred by this tooth that you had, right? Like, cause it, yeah. it reminded you of your past or of something that you didn't like about yourself and, yeah. and, and getting that removed. You said you were able to get in touch with that inner child of yours, which is, is that's like a legitimate psychological thing that a lot of that gets worked through in people where you're able to sit down a younger version of yourself and you're able to let them go because what mm-hmm. happens when you have a heightened emotional state that, it, it, it you are basically stunted your psychological development from that point forward. And so when that experience comes up again, or if someone mentions it, it you will, it, you will revert back to that child or whatever it was. And then you'll, yeah. you'll, it, you'll repeat those patterns of behavior until you reconcile them. And yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's part of like FML theory, you know, um, where you have exiles in yes. your managers in yeah. your managers. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and, but here is, I don't think I ever lost that inner child. I think that inner child is part of me. He just comes, he's not exiled anymore. Right. Uh, the 10 year old who lost his father, grandfather and father figure. He's not exiled anymore. He's allowed to come anytime. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes he needs something though. Mm-hmm. Right? He needs to be loved or right. cared for. It's like reintegrating it. Yeah. But he's not, you know, he's, he's welcome anytime, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the thing. I've always rather playful childlike, you know, I, you know, I think that's one of my endearing qualities. He's mm-hmm. like, I don't, I'm not, ultim- I'm not, um, I'm not always grown up. That's what that Yeah. Is. And then the other part of this, mm-hmm. I would say is that the, mm-hmm. the, the sense of, of, you know, you've done the work here. Like you've, you've gone inside of, you know, your inner, inner space, you know, that <laughs> the three pounds of, <laughs> of, of gray matter between your ears and, and mm-hmm. you've, you've just spent time there. It's really noticeable. And this is coming from gone, going to doing mindset training in Seattle and, and just exploring this space a lot more, but also being around psychologists who, who understand this work. And it's just, seeing other people do it and then resonating and seeing this being like, wow. And and being taken aback by it to some degree. Cause I, I don't, you know, I, and it's as you're talking about it, you're referencing the, our previous podcast and I'm just re, you know, kind of being struck again by just how much of the, the deep work that you've done for yourself, which is just seriously coming through even more so, even though where this is more of a specific context, but it shows just how much 
responsibility you have for your own well-being. Yeah, and I do, and I do want to say that my wife, my kid, my 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 kids, and my family are definitely important. It's like it is a journey myself, but it is a journey to which they they benefit too because they say like you're like the rock in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Like when they're being emotional, I'm not. I'm. Tr- I've learned the word don't invalidate. You know, mm-hmm. their emotional state is very important. Whether You know, I even tell my wife, like when her son's having, you know, problems and, and I say, don't invalidate his feelings. Just let him, mm-hmm. you know, I know you're worried. I know you're scared. Yeah. Like, make like don't, don't say like, you'll be fine. Right. Like just hand wave it mm-hmm. away. Don't do that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but in the same token, say, you know, what can I do to help? But more importantly, mm-hmm. he's made, him and his sister make, you know, they make, you know, they've made, decent decisions. You know, they, they are successful. They're, you know, they are living and they are living in the place they want to live mm-hmm. and it's going to be struggle. It's not going to be easy, you know, um, but they're doing fine, you know, and yeah. you know, that's, you know, and that's part of the other aspect of, like I said, everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be, you know, you're going to have to work at it. It's not just like autopilot, but you know, have faith that this, you know, when you're confronted with a problem, you're confronted with some type of situation, there's a way out. It's yeah. not hopeless. The, the plane is, you know, the, there's the, they call it the attitude of approach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the attitude of approach is very important to turn around anything, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's a Heroes of the Storm game <laughs> or what have you. Uh, if your attitude of approach is that the plane is going to crash, the plane will crash, right? Yeah. But if, the, if your attitude of approach is we're going to try to land the plane, the chances are increase slightly that the plane will land safe. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but the probability of success is higher than the probability of just, oh, we're all going to die and we'll die, right? And, you know, back to how Fight Club, for myself, it became kind of a symbol of that sardonic, you know, um, hopelessness, right? You know, um, you know the, the, the dialogue and the kind of holding yourself back what kind of changed for me was, um, you know, having a confrontation with my father recently, I reevaluated the Buddhism and, and mental health. And I, I came in the connection where Buddhism can be, um, uh, you know, kind of a, an avenue, the, the practices like the mindfulness, the meditations, these things, but also the philosophy that, you know, as as Westerners adopt Buddhism, they're they're not taking all the cultural baggage with it, right? Uh-huh. They're they're adopting just the pure Dharma and the, and the teachings of the Buddha. And I can, you know, one of the teachings is, you know that they kind of really brought over was that we're all perfect. Remember, not best, not worst. Uh-huh. That we work at being perfect. That we we don't, you know, we Every, don't cut parts of ourselves every, off. Everything like, you need is already within you. That's a quote I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't cut parts of ourselves off, right? We don't cut off our anger. We don't. We just come. We learn to compost the anger, mm-hmm. and you know, and you know, by doing that, by having a, a better attitude of approach, that's that helps us survive. And mm-hmm. you know, it's funny because some people say, "Well, I want to become enlightened." You know, but, uh, you, know mm-hmm. I, you know, to me, you know, part of my religious, you know, kind of upbringing was you want to go to heaven. I just want to, inf- I want to positively influence the world, the people, more importantly, the people within my, like people like you, my, my friends, my family, mm-hmm. I want to be a positive influence in their lives and let that radiate out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be enlightened or Buddhism, <laughs> you know, Buddhahood. I, I mean, I, I kind of joke and say I'm a Buddha. 
know, it's like because of my knowledge about certain things that work, you know. But it's just it's it's a play on it. Like I'm I'm like the actor directory Buddha. I'm like I'm like yeah. the here's the storm Reddit Buddha. You know, right, I'm yeah. like you know you, I'm you like, say it playfully, you but you don't mean it in that sense. <laughs> right. I'm I'm a bit more enlightened than say non people who play. You know, right. I have a little bit more enlightenment, but I'm not a pro. Mm-hmm. But um. But I do like the concept of the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva concept is someone who delays their ascension to Buddhism to help um, eradicate suffering or to or deal with the suffering that is yeah. on the world. It's they like delay the cho- their. It's the choice to you. You've seen yeah. the other end of the tunnel, so to speak. But then in, instead mm-hmm. of walking through the, the the pearly white gates or whatever you decide to call it, um, mm-hmm. you step back and you say, "No, my work isn't done yet." <laughs> right. Exactly. And I don't think my artwork will ever be done, you know, yeah. per se. If it ever does get done, you know, the only thing I, I guess if you ask me what I'm trying to influence will be right to my, my grandson, you mm-hmm. know, and that's where I'm at. You know, it's like, and, you know, Fight Club's a fun story. You know, it's, you know, if it motivates someone to, uh, you know, change the world, that's great. If it motivates mm-hmm. someone to go shoot up a movie theater, not so great. Yes. But, you know, um, I don't necessarily, I will not necessarily attribute it to that. You know, we had to say when we played Dungeons and Dragons is mental, people with mental uh, conditions shouldn't play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Wow. Maybe if you have a mental condition, you shouldn't read Fight Club or watch it. Mm-hmm. Just like you said earlier, if you are predisposition, uh, maybe you shouldn't take psychotropics, you know, that if it will trigger yeah. some type of, you know, schizophrenia. Yeah, if you have schizophrenia or yeah. something like that, you shouldn't yeah, have maybe, mind-altering substances in your body. Yeah, because it, it, you know, and that's, that's the thing now, can, you know, can we um, make it a safe space? Can we, no, I don't think so. I think this is what it is, you know? I yeah. Mean, I mean, something, you know, some areas I, I really, you know, you, we talked about this a couple of months ago when I was first doing some of the sensory deprivation and whatnot, where I was apprehensive about losing myself in the sense of when you go down these avenues of exploring the mind, it is a solitary journey. Like, sure, you you bring other people around you with you because they are the receiving end of what you find at the other end. But there's a point where when you can go so far into it that you lose the grounding in yeah. the physical world, right? Like, you go so deep right. into the, into this, this spiritual or... I don't know how you, how you know the internal. Yeah, you get lost. You get lost in your thoughts, or you get lost. You know, you have an epiphany, but that epiphany might be not uh, bound in reality. Reality, yes, yeah. And, so, and so you know, that's very much what that kind of you know cautionary tale is. Like, it, 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 that's not even something that if you have you know a predisposition to some sort of you know schizophrenia or something yeah, like that. It, it's just a cautionary tale that when you go into these places, you might not like what you find. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, if you're going, you know, you gotta be careful of self-medicating and self, you know, sometimes you do need the, the professional. So like if mm-hmm. you're dealing with trouble, troubling situations and you have the means, definitely go get the means. Like if you yeah. can get a therapist or, or, you know, like the one thing I do, is I sit in a Sangha, which, you know, in Buddhism, you have the Buddha, you have the, you have the, the Buddha is the enlightened one. The, the Dharma is the teachings from the Buddha. And then the Sangha are the, are the people who practice Buddhism. I do that um, once a week. It's, you know, what you do in a Sangha is you sit for, and you sit for 20 minutes, you walk for 20 minutes and you sit for 20 minutes mindfully breathing. 
And the practice mm-hmm. of doing that is to calm your mind, okay? Because you have a monkey brain. You were talking <laughs> about this like last, like last week when you were talking about mindfulness, you know? Yep. Calm the mind, calm the mind. Now, you like to make a distinction, but you sometimes like to make the distinction between meditation and mindfulness. And I think that is a good, there is a, I think it's a good way to kind of look at it. Um, maybe that's a more advanced way of doing it. Yeah, um, it's it's a newer thing with, with the mindset yeah. stuff that I've been doing, which. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, you know, the, um, the Sangha is the kind of like the, the, it's taught me the practice of mindfulness. And I think one of the things you were trying to kind of differentiate is that mindfulness practice is different than meditation, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think um, what I learned last weekend when I went to a little retreat, I learned a pra- uh, uh, one of the Buddhist practices touching the earth. Um, so the practice of mindfulness is the common mind, but then there are practices to get the insight or the in- introspective, mm-hmm. you know, to become more insight, to try to develop insights, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, there's different ways to do it. So, but... Good. <laughs> okay. So the way I want to just like unpack it is is um, mm-hmm. saying mindfulness it, it it turns it into a skill based activity, right? It's something that okay. you can practice, like like being an athlete or or, or a business mm-hmm. person. It's I trying, definitely think that's true. It's trying to root it in some sort of physical, like tangible thing, because a lot Tasted of time, knowledge. <laughs> yeah, some knowledge. Because you're trying. Because a lot of times people say, "Yeah, just sit there and just pay attention to your breath." And for the average right. person, that is so outside the normal realm of what we do in a given day, right? Because like you said, the monkey mind or the wandering mind is our natural state where I think mm-hmm. we have, I, I heard it recently, it's like we have like 80,000 thoughts a day, <laughs> <laughs> something crazy like that. Um, yeah. And how many of those do you check in with, if, if at all or ever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so for me, like it was one of the really things that helped me try to, to entertain the possibility of doing this thing. Um, and this mm-hmm. is a really slow build over time. Like, you know, scales tipping. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I listen to many, many podcasts, so I'm going to beat it to death here. Like I don't have my own podcast because I think I can have my air is better than other people's air, but <laughs> I, I have podcasts because I think the medium itself is really, really important because I think it's between the nuances that we are get closer to truth and have value to add. It's not about the talking points and the five second blurbs that people say. It's about things that we're pushing and learning from each other in real time that gives us value. So that's why we do long form. Like that's, I seriously think that's why long form is important. It's where things blend and, and, and shift. And you're like, Oh, I didn't think about that before is where it matters. Mm -hmm. And, and to, to have the mindfulness part is, is I kept hearing all of these athletes, these CEOs, these people, who maybe they didn't call it mind meditation or mindfulness, but they did something where they were able to sit with their thoughts and give themselves, you know, five minutes a day where they weren't doing anything. They were just there mm-hmm. in that moment decompressing and just not mm-hmm. attaching a meaning to the thought or like, oh yeah, that's on my to-do list now. It was just there and recognizing it and then letting it go. And over time, it kind of got to this thing that, oh, hey, if these CEOs and these people who are supposed to be busier and more productive than me, right? Have the time in quotation marks to sit there for five minutes or 10 minutes to do this. Then why can't everybody, or at the very least, why can't I find the time myself, right? To do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where the, the, the soft entry point of it kind of came from. And then it just kind of started expanding from there into this, the nuance of it. So if, if you look at everything, like we were talking, I think before we were recording, you know, we like to think of things as, as spectrums, right? Like the, or rather 
We like to think of things as black and white, this or that. But in reality, we think of everything as a spectrum. You know, it's from point mm-hmm. from A to B, and you kind of fall somewhere along that spectrum of of whatever yeah. topic you're thinking about. And I started thinking about mindfulness, or as this kind of spectrum. So mindfulness is somewhere near the surface, and then mm-hmm. meditation is somewhere de- down toward the bottom, right? If you turn this spectrum and you make it depth surface to to depth, right, right. <laughs> mindfulness is at the top part and getting you, but meditation gives lets you deep, dive deeper, yes, and explore. It's a more introspective know, but, but, practice where you're looking inside you of to, yourself. But you have to be able to hold your breath, right? <laughs> like to go deep, you can't do. <laughs> Yeah, right. And you got to build yourself up to it. You can't just dive to the bottom and and expect not to have, you know, you know, the oxygen sickness as you come back up. (laughs) (laughs) Like it it really. More importantly, yeah. And more importantly, you need to be safe, right? Mm Because you have to have the protective gear, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I can see what you're saying. You're being cautious about, you know, you know, getting too deep and, and you could unlock something about yourself. And Mm -hmm. if you're using other aids to assist you, like, you know, in a sense, I will say that the um, nitrous oxide I had for the dental procedures was, uh, you know, it wasn't a psychotropic, but it definitely let me. Um, it quieted see- something in your mind that allowed you to get deeper. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, and that's why focus. I brought it up. That's why I brought it up. Yeah, because it, it sounded focus. something like that. I thought it was really right. fascinating. That that. But the problem with these types of treatments, these these types of approaches, is they're really difficult to regulate. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like the right. government, they just kind of like, well, we better not do it at all, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. well, we're just legalized and let you guys. Figure. Um, yeah. Right now, we're seeing the big, the big shift towards CBD oil, right? Yeah. You know? I've been using it and for like two months. My wife started, you know, uh, people use it, and you know, to me, I'm a little bit more skeptical of it. You know, it's not, it's not because I, I just feel like, you know, that's kind of like the one thing that I'll say about my ex-wife that was that she said that was really lasting is you got to be careful of supplements or any type of thing that you add to your body that your body that your body naturally produces itself mm-hmm. if you were to supplement that your body might stop producing it itself correct and thus you know that can be that's a, that's a dangerous state like serotonin so that's why you know these psychotropic drugs that are d- designed to treat mental illness I'm a little leery of only because I think there are people that do need them, mm-hmm. you know, because they're in, you know, but, you know, what's happened was there was a period of time when people who, you know, they just had situational depressions and stuff yeah. were being prescri- prescribed these really strong, you know, uh, 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 altering, personality altering drugs like yeah. Prozac and such. And it was having an effect, like, you know, it was having an effect on their personalities yeah. and yeah. such, so, you know. I, I do want to I do want to double click here and, and kind of say if you're interested in these things like this this ability of like psychotropic drugs um, to to help people with significant illness like either traumatic like PTSD or uh, addiction there's a really good documentary it's from Israel it's called Trips of Compassion you can find it on Vimeo I think it's like ten dollars or something to pay for it to to watch it but. The, these guys, they 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 were doing a study basically in Israel to take, I believe it was M- MDMA or P- psilocybin, one of the two, um, and they basically did like standard, you know, the psychotherapy along with the psychedelic assisted version of it to to walk these people through the the their experiences and they had like four or so patients. There's only twelve total, and, and you got to see their progression through working through it with the the psychedelic uh compounds and Mm -hmm. and and the the 
end of the movie is very stark contrast to how they started. Like the body language, the, the like the sense of hope that the people had by the end of the movie was was very very apparent. And I never have seen something like this that that you can mm -hmm. actually you know see the trajectory over the I believe it was like eight weeks or so that this treatment was going on, and they only had six sessions of taking the psychedelics. So it's not like right. they were taking it every day, obviously. So it's it's not right. There was it was like kind of introduced in like a kind of very therapeutic. It's very therapeutic, and, like very professional. Yeah. Very you know they had two sitters in the room when they were doing the interviews while the person was on the drugs and things like that, and they were just being you know guides basically. But the the it just shows the power of being able to reconcile traumatic events, but done in a setting that is designed to facilitate that. You know, I, yeah, I'm gonna I mean, be, I'm gonna be very very clear, and I'm not I'm not recommending anyone go out and you know do this with their friends and and just <laughs> you know because they are illegal drugs. Like you, they're still illegal the technically. So don't. Yeah, and <laughs> like that's that's you know there's one thing about legal illegal, but power. Yes. And that's the thing I caution that powerful drugs can have powerful effects, right? Yes. You know, like, um, you know, uh, I'm not saying go do this uh, with your homies and sit on a couch yeah. and become potatoes. It's like, <laughs> it's like heroin, right? You know, heroin. And you know, what's really scary is the type of drugs we, the, the designer drugs they today that can like fentanyl. Oh my God. Where, that's so crazy to me. It's more addictive I, you know, than anything I, else. Right. <laughs> and it doesn't, and it can just be like a piece of, you know, it can just, you know, it's just it's scary. You know, what, what, mm -hmm. how someone can become addicted to that, not even trying. You know, yeah. It's like they could yeah. just be at a, someone offers them a drink, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, that being said, I, I, you know, drug therapies are there to assist, you know, um, to provide comfort and such. So I'm not against them. I just think that, you know, we have to be very mind, mindful. Right. <laughs> or, I yeah, mean, yeah, to be. I, it's I gonna be controlled. <laughs> it's gonna have some type of scientific basis, right? Yeah, I, I just yeah. feel it's so it's so funny that we talk about this stuff because if I had, mm -hmm. if I had a way to describe what mindfulness is or like what mindfulness provides for you, I probably I, I use it I use it in the wrong context. There, you just have to be aware. Right, that's it. That that's yeah, yeah. awareness. It's just adding awareness to you, like yourself, how you respond to things, you know, mm -hmm. and then how you show up every day. It's like, oh, I'm feeling X today, or I'm, you know, yeah. a little elevated right now. I need to like cool myself down, or, you know, like, yeah. I think that's been like the biggest shift for myself over probably the last three or three-ish months now, as I've yeah. really gotten into this stuff. Is just having a better sense of awareness on who I am, moment to moment. Especially when I'm yeah. like stressed out, like I'm like, oh wow, like I'm really really busy right now, and I would normally be like frazzled and like kind of like at my ner like nerves end kind of thing, and like maybe a little easily irritable, and like I need people to just go the fuck away, and then mm -hmm. I just kind of find myself like rolling off, you know, <laughs> rolling it off the mm -hmm. shoulder and be like, well, I guess I can't get everything done today, and right. such is life, mm -hmm. and then you just kind of roll with it, and then like when you're done doing with what you can do because you're at your limit of productivity, then you just you drop it and you come back to it yeah. tomorrow with a fresh head, and you hope to to get as much done as you can and repeat that as long as you can. And I, I think that's why I'm I'm finding this idea of like mindset, like training the mind, is so important to myself, and then trying to disseminate that to people now because. It's like the one thing that pays dividends in every aspect of your life, whatever it is that you want to do. 
you know, because yeah. if you if you have trained your mind, you show up in any domain that you feel like showing up better in, and then those around you reap the rewards of that. <laughs> exactly. And to tie it back into Fight Club, you know, then maybe to close out the conversation, mm -hmm. um, is in Fight Club, you know, this person, you know, uh, the story is about, they're trying, you know, they're changing the world, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can get caught up in our everyday lives, you know, working on a project or something. And we want to focus just on that one thing. And what we do sometimes when we do that is we isolate ourselves um, and, and become disconnected from the world. And if we don't have a way of reintegrating our back into the world mm -hmm. in a healthy manner, we could do more harm than good, right? We could go off and make decisions without, you know, consulting people, these decisions could have negative consequences to other folk. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the moral of the story is, yeah, at the end of the story, they blow up capitalism. Yeah. Right? They blow up all the debt and they yeah. free everyone from their debts. Right. And that, you know, and then the, of course the other two um, uh, novelizations of the story afterwards, um, they build on that a little bit. Right. But um, in this, you know, but in the sense he does kind of, quiet his mind you know he does blow out tyler he kills tyler mm -hmm. and then he comes with marla um in a sense he you know you know he, he ends it with he met me at a time in my life and i think that's <laughs> just i think that's a very kind of profound you know closing statement and sometimes i like to use that and there's a there's a there's a chinese proverb that says may you live in interesting times it's actually sometimes called the curse right you know mm -hmm. um and the idea is that you know you're always going to live in interesting times you know to, you know people think oh in the past it was much easier than today no we've always struggled we've always had atrocities we've always had you know leaders who have failed us or you know i mean like we've always had the problems you know it's just they take on different permutations uh, yeah permutations and such but like it's you know but there are always the problems within ourselves too and i think that that you know the like i said what resonated with me in this movie was there was a there was something spiritual about it mm -hmm. there was a spiritual struggle and you know it, it's led me down to the path i'm at where i'm spiritual but i'm not really i, I mean like i'm okay with you know christianity methodism you know, I, I will attend. I will. I feel. I can feel connected. But like I said, I don't need magic tricks to believe in a higher power. I believe that we can do that ourselves just by being kind and mindful <laughs> and treating ourselves. And and probably the biggest thing is judgment. You know, judgment and criticism. Knowing how to apply them in loving kindness <laughs> ways. For those that, of you, that's meta. If you want to look it up, M E T T A. Yeah. Yeah, if you can do meta, whatever that, you know, that's to me is the key to life right now. Mm -hmm. So, so like I said, Fight Club, great story. Great, you know, if you haven't watched it, go ahead and watch it. Hopefully it didn't spoil too much of it for you. Hopefully, you know, our experience, my experience that I share is something that you connect with. If not, oh. Um, <laughs> but like I said, there's probably going to be your version of Fight Club in your, you know, 10 years from now. Like Ren will have his version of Fight Club, you know, <laughs> when he is growing up. And, you know, the important thing is, is like, if they're having, you know, to, to like, if they're struggling with it, maybe recognize that struggle and talk about suffering and what might be the root cause of the sufferings, you know, because I do think that ultimately we have to, we have to resolve that, you know, to some way, shape or form and, and then turn that into joy, you know, and I don't think that there's anything joyful in Fight Club. I mean, there's funny, 
you know, there's humor, but in a sense that I don't think the nor- the narrator experiences joy at the end of it. No, I think he just. I think know. it's I think it's made to be a juxtaposition on it so that you it's like yeah. slaps you in the face and wakes you up like oh yeah maybe yeah. this is how I am operating a little bit you know it's supposed exactly. to be a wake up call I think it's yeah. you know I, I find movies lately it's like you have to because of the overabundance of stimulus and information we have to have this like shock and awe factor like go to the extreme to teach the lesson so that you can reintegrate it into your life and actually like take stock for what we see because the mundanity of the world gets in the way because exactly when it, when it's that you're every day, you don't get a chance to see it, but when it's so extreme, you're like, Oh yeah, I, I do kind of see it that way. <laughs> that's that's the David Foster Wallace, you know, mm-hmm. uh, approach, you know, life can be mundane and that's, how, and that's how it's supposed to be. And you're supposed to be okay with that. You know? Yeah, so, well, yeah. As always, Todd, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you and, you know, as you were saying, the <laughs> closing out here, it's, you know, it definitely is an interesting time to have created this friendship and to see where it's gone. I mean, considering we started this, these conversations over a video game and now it's transitioning into something <laughs> way different. Yeah, about, yeah, about it's, well, it's a little bit, it'll, we're a little over a year, right? Cause we, I think. We, yeah. About a year. Uh, about the end of July or so, or mid July. So mm-hmm. yeah. So it's been about a year. So yeah. it's it's very cool and as always thankful for your time and the input that you have for everything that Feeding Curiosity is is evolving to into and or becoming. It's a fun road to be on. <laughs> yeah, it's a great and it's it's great to be involved with the you know, I love the podcast. It's like like you said, I think it's a it's reaching a point. You know, it's been there. It's been kind of, you know, uh a staple of, of media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely and, is its own thing now, but it still feels very fight clubby in its own way. <laughs> yeah. but, but the other thing is that the tools are becoming, it's becoming more democratized, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's very easy to, you know, the tools that we have available to us to produce podcasts and to publish them. It's gotten almost to the point where you don't have to have a very large amount of money at all, nope. you know? And so, and I like the audio cast. I mean, I think the world loves YouTube and Twitch, but, I think, you know, having this kind of like, you know, thing that you can take with you that you don't have to be online is kind of an important. Mm-hmm. Aspect of ideas, well, so. you know, yeah. the freedom of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and you definitely have, you've definitely turned your brand. You've been cultivating that brand. And I like where everything you've been taking with it, you know, like those little feeding frenzies that you do once a week. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that they supplement the content of the podcast. I hope, I wish you much success if I can provide <laughs> it. I mean, you know, if, if I could be on your steering committee or whatever like that. Yeah, it's great. I and like you said, I I remember like what I said to you, and I I feel bad for saying this to you about a year ago. I go, you know, this is like something that you're going to do part time. This isn't what you're really going to do, right? You know, I I, I said something like I didn't mean it in like a sense, but at the time, you know, it just seemed like it was like a a pet project Mm -hmm. that you were working towards, like becoming a full time engineer, and that that was going to be your thing. But I can see this being like a part time gig, or even becoming your full time gig, where you know, as you as you mature and as you uh, uh, kind of get your you, you develop connections and such. Eventually, people are going to come to you and say, "Well, what do you think about?" It? And you're going to become a much better interviewer. You know, you're, you know, what I'm saying like you, you, everything's about improvement, and you're going to mm-hmm. continuously. And so, I don't mean I, I feel kind of bad saying that, but now I'm happy where you you, you know. Basically, I remember like what was it like when we first met? You might have put out one of these podcasts 
like one, it was like maybe two, one or three. two. Yeah, it was, there wasn't a lot when I'd first started because it, it wasn't really. It was mainly it's like you and your bros. It was like a bro, yeah, like a little bro yeah. thing. And then you know, all of a sudden, like you and I started doing the podcast, and all of a sudden you went. And I and you're like week after week you're doing podcast talking. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I just I don't know if if I get motivated I, I I will move mountains to make things exist and you know I I the part of like the freeding frenzies for myself was like trying to unpack my process of learning and a lot yeah. of a lot of what that comes down to is for me is, is I just take inputs from everywhere. And I find mm-hmm. myself, you know, like I would share things to you or I'd share things to other friends and I'd be like, Ooh, what do you think? Or I found this cool thing. And then I was like, wait, I have a website that I can do this to a massive audience kind of thing. And, yeah. and I wanted to basically create a little thing that was a like bite-sized little morsel that people could kind of feed off of over a week because my amount of information that I can take in is kind of astronomical, um, mm-hmm. it, by the average standard, um, and so but giving I, someone like a little bit of a map of like, you know, Hey, this is some interesting things. Like, you know, yeah. the mindfulness one, when you, I think you linked to the mindfulness. Yes, uh, I did. We, yeah. we talked about that it and of, I linked it to you first to yeah. kind of get your feedback on it. Um, no, no, no. There's the other mindfulness, the, the research uh, paper on mindfulness. Yeah. The, the one the that one was, was like a couple months ago. <laughs> yeah, that was really, I was like, well, that's really good. I shared it with my wife. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can see where, you know, there's much more rigor now. And we, but it was, what was really interesting is like the, the effect of the internet had on mindfulness mm-hmm. adoption. Yeah. You know, because I thought was, that was fascinating. Yeah. So, but anyway, and that's the thing we can talk like in you, you are kind of going to do a series and we can kind of transition yeah, to that. I, I do want to so do, wanna... I'm going to do more on like how to train your mind. I, that's going to probably mm-hmm. be like a mini series embedded into the podcast um, mm-hmm. over time. And, uh, you'll, you'll see probably yourself coming on that one and other people, <laughs> other people who, who are plugged into the different aspects of training the mind in different categories. And, and hopefully we can kind of, you know, uh, provide a blueprint to people to figure this, the thing is that it is your brain out, right? Like figuring yourself mm-hmm. out is kind of the name of the game. I guess, the, I guess <laughs> in, your, in a sense though, your rules are, you do talk about you know, training as opposed to fight club where we don't talk about fight club. Yeah. Right. And this one, we're the opposite. So I yeah, think well, that's yeah. a great way to end this episode. <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> yeah. All right. Till next time, everybody, this is a great conversation and I hope you all enjoyed. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.